0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 204 Governing the Early Tudor State. Before we start, I have some housekeeping to announce. Next week, the 12th of February 2017, you will get a whole load of new History of England episodes, eight to be precise. None of them will be new, they will all be from the Anglo Saxon England podcast. A further 12 will be modified. Essentially, I'm getting rid of all my first 11 episodes, they're being deleted, banished to the outer darkness of the soul, removed forever, and I'm replacing them with 20 episodes from the new Anglo-Saxon podcast. This means that the history of England can be made whole. I'm sorry, it will be something of a pain of downloading, but I can't think of a way of avoiding it, and nor can Acast. Really sorry. Next week on the Members Feed, just so you know, we have an episode on how England looked to four visitors in 1500. They had a torrid time. Come along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and sign up for membership, everyone, and enter the Aladdin's Cave of History. Back to the history, then. Last time we ended up in November 1501, and we heard about a happy Henry essentially establishing his dynasty, seeing his son married to a Spanish princess spending a week of celebrations, demonstrating to everyone just how arrived the Tudor dynasty really was. This week, we're going to take a pause from the narrative and look at two things. Firstly, it would be great to take a look at the Tudor court and government. Think of this as an investment, gentle listeners, something that will always be on your mind through the reigns of Henry VII and his son guiding you, warming you. Then secondly, let's look at Henry and his administration to the point where his son and heir was married. What are some of the things Henry was doing to earn his reputation as a hard man? Before we start everyone, I did a chart and a brief article of which I was rather pleased. You can find it on thehistoryofengland.co.uk. It describes the roles and structure of the Tudor court and you're going to love it. So now then, the Tudor government. In the words of the sound of music, let's start at the very beginning, the King's Council. It's a very good place to start. The key thing to remember is that the king's council is categorically not like a modern cabinet. Good lord, no. It has no official status. There are no specific portfolios in it that need to be filled. The king can ask whoever he jolly well pleases to be on it, the local gong farmer if that's what he wants. By and large, kings don't ask gong farmers because they smell. This is a hideous digression in such an august subject, but a gong farmer, should you not be in the know, is one of the folks who gather after dark to collect the day's collection of poop in a town, pop it, or probably pour it, into carts, take it down to the river, and away. Anyway, the king's council then is just an advisory body. It's there because the king has a responsibility to consult. As we said a while ago, it becomes unwieldy because there are really too many peers around to use them as a working committee. So, Henry VII created his own inner group of 12 or so people, of the middling sort, who really do the work. You might want to think, then, of the old magnum concilium, the Great Council, which is the peers assembled, often in Parliament, as the big unwieldy body with whom the king consults, and then the king's council, which is now a much smaller group, with whom the king rolls up his sleeves and gets to work with his armies. Fine. So where are we with the great officers of state then, the official job roles the state has defined? The great officers are pretty much the same in Henry's time as we're used to. The Chancellor is traditionally top of the tree, and it's become custom and practice for him to be a churchman. The current incumbent is Archbishop John Morton. The Chancellor's office had developed from the old Chancery office, the King's Secretariat. That function has now largely gone to another of the officers of state, the Lord of the Privy Seal. So instead, the Chancellor keeps the great seal of the kingdom used to confirm all official documents with the king's will. And the Chancellor is now head of the legal function of the court because the king's court has always been a court of law as well as a place to catch the king's eye and catch up on the goss. So the Chancellor bossed both the courts of common law and the chancery courts. We're going to come to legal changes in a little while. You'll love it. Well, maybe. The Lord Privy Seal, incidentally, held a seal that the King could lug around with him, used to make decisions in his private household, the Chamber, as it's called. And the Lord Privy Seal managed the King's writing office, as we've just said. Okay, so that's Chancellor and Lord Privy Seal, and then we have the Treasurer, who from once being largely a bloke with a key in a big box, is now head of the financial function to whom the Barons of the Exchequer report. They collect the cash coming in from the King's government in the regions, the sheriffs and all of that. The Chancellor and the Treasurer now have big bureaucracies of their own, of course, lucky devils. So their functions have moved out of the court, largely to Westminster Hall as part of Westminster Palace. One of the things we've talked about under the Yorkists is that these big bureaucracies have become slow and inefficient. And Edward IV and Richard the Third tended to take financial functions and get them done in the king's household in the chamber. Henry VII does the same thing, but it takes him some time to get started, maybe simply because mm, he had a bunch of other things to do. But by the mid-1490s, he's doing what the Yorkists have started to do. There are then four more great officers of state. One more will be added in the 1530s, but we'll deal with that when we get there. Three of these have become largely ceremonial, the steward of England, the bloke who used to organise the king's household, now it's only created for specific events. The constable and the marshal, previously the head of the king's foot and horse respectively, they've become ceremonial also. The marshal have something of a function, since it becomes the head of the College of Arms, the place where the great and the good argue about who has the right to wear what badges and all of that sort of thing, which they find really, really important. So, all of those officers are either seated outside of the court now or they're largely defunct, which brings us to the Lord Chamberlain. It's an odd situation with the Lord Chamberlain. As we'll see under Henry VII, the English court moves from a two-department structure to a three-department structure. Only the head of one of these departments is described as a great office of state, the Lord Chamberlain. For the heads of the other two departments, which are not described as great officers of state, listen on which brings us, as night follows day, to the king's household itself. So the traditional form of the English court was the hall, a great open space where the king ate and worked with his great men, essentially the same in everything except scale as any lord's hall. And then in the 14th century, a second room was added, the presence chamber, as it was called, essentially the throne room. And you might remember the weirdness of Richard II insisting that folks avert their eyes if their eyes met. The court was quite unlike any political institution we have today. In the hall, anybody who was anybody would meet to discuss the politics and affairs of the day and to attract some patronage or gain some interest to help them defend some court case or other. Lords, lawyers, artists, musicians, a great melee, a great melange, hoping to attract the attention of the king, or indeed just one of the lords there. And as the king increasingly became the centre of patronage, the court only increased in importance. As a whole, England's government probably amounted to something like 1,500 posts, great and small, from the scullery maid to the groom of the stool. Of these posts, maybe something like 175, were worthy of a gentleman. So, if you were a gentleman and you wanted one, competition was pretty fierce. It seems likely that Henry made some changes to this structure sometime after the horrifying treason of William Stanley, a man as close to the throne as you could get without actually sitting on it. So Henry added the privy chamber and added his yeoman of the guard to the great chamber. So instead of two rooms, the hall and the presence chamber, you now have three. The first is the great old watching chamber. Here are now placed the yeoman of the guard, the world, and indeed, her husband. The next room is the presence chamber, for those who could get past the yeoman of the guard, which was pretty much anyone who mattered. Folks would gather there to gossip and look for openings, and often the king would be in attendance with them. The third room was then the privy chamber. This was the blank door behind the throne. This wasn't a public room. Behind this door, Henry could work without interruption, and with the council of men he wanted and trusted. And these were not the grand and the great, like William Stanley. As we've seen, these are men entirely dependent on the king for their preferment, the braise and dauburness of this world. The privy chamber becomes extended to a complex of bedrooms, libraries, closets and meeting rooms. Now in all this, Henry was behaving very much like an Italian Renaissance prince. Such a prince would expect to have around him men who applied no political pressures, whose job was simply to serve his wishes and no more. Political pressure and faction was now confined to the public rooms and the king's council. So far so good. The trouble was that now the physical structure was out of step with the traditional organisation of the king's household. Henry now changed that structure as well and so here goes. Refer to that chart on the website I mentioned which may help. Within the king's household as a whole there is an out of house lot and an in house lot. Out of house lot are a series of departments that report into the king and by and large it's all the fun stuff. The masters of the hounds, the masters of the hunt, that sort of thing, the royal chapel, clerk of works. Inside or in-house there had always been two departments. One was the below stairs stuff and the other group, the one that managed the public rooms of the chamber. The below stairs bunch was a sort of service group run by the lord steward of the household who managed all the folks who made sure there was linen on the beds, food on the table, everything was clean and neat and tidy. Job of the other group then, the chamber was to make absolutely sure that anybody who came to court was hit in the face by the magnificence and glory of their sovereign, that the public rooms provided the right ceremonial setting for the exercise of the power of kingship. Magnificence and display and pageant, was an absolute necessity of early modern kingship. This was the Lord Chamberlain's domain. Here were employed the folks who looked after the king's clothes, his jewellery, a personal treasury, his knights of the body, personal chaplains, physicians and so on. And it's the Lord Chamberlain who is that last great officer of state. But now this chamber had become split into two types of chamber, the public and the private. The public chambers with the watching chamber and the yeoman of the guard defending it, and the presence or throne chamber. The private rooms were together described as the privy chambers. That meant that there needed to be different sets of servants as well. So, Henry now made sure that the secret or privy chamber was given its own staff. At the head of this group was an interestingly named official called the groom of the stool. The groom of the stool is exactly what you think it is. Be aware, folks. Now, nothing could communicate the awe in which monarchy was held that the job of attending the king while he had a poo was considered not humiliating in any way but a great and signal honour. But the role now became less about the king's private movements, although to know the intimacy of the royal health was a great power. But it now also carried the responsibility for the king's private service. The groom of the stool, a man called Hugh Dennis under Henry VII, was now an enormously powerful position. He controlled access to the king. He came to have a critical financial responsibility, essentially the minister of the king's treasury. Under him, the move was completed to bring financial management away from the bureaucracy-ridden exchequer. And again, the men populating this most private of chambers, the people closest to the king, were not grand. They are the gentry at best, and their role is purely to serve, not to exercise political pressure. The steward of the household, the Lord Chamberlain, the head of the public chambers. These are the posts held by the magnates and great men. Let us now then spend the rest of the episode looking at the king's administration up to the point we've reached in the narrative of 1501. The picture I'm trying to paint, just to be open about it, is of a king who has been under pressure from day one about the legitimacy of his title, never secure on his throne. Simnel, Warbeck, The Cornish, Suffolk, an unbroken stream from 1485 all the way through to his death. Coupled with his relative inexperience of government and his lack of knowledge and relationship with the magnates of the realm, this led Henry anyway to be a naturally controlling king and increasingly more so, and a man who relied on this new kind of bureaucrat rather than the untrustworthy nobility but he wasn't overboard in his control, or at least not initially. There are plenty of examples of Henry's suspicious and controlling nature, but successful kings tend to be suspicious and controlling. So there are examples like his treatment of Suffolk, the spies he used to uncover and deal with the likes of Stanley, and these might be oppressive, but not unusually so, actually. And up until 1500-1503, with men like Archbishop Morton and Reginald Bray around him, tough but reasonable men in his instincts were moderated. But some dramatic events in the first decade of the 16th century as we'll come to next time led to the wheels essentially coming off but again that's for the future a bit. From the start Henry had resolved that to be secure and to rule well he must be more powerful than his subjects and he must therefore be richer than his subjects and this was immediately displayed with his settlement after Bosworth. A vast amount of land came into his hands with the fall of Richard III and with the attainders of the 1485 parliaments, especially in the north. Now, Edward IV's practice would have been to resettle a lot of that land on his supporters to reward them, but Henry doesn't do this. He keeps those lands for the crown. And actually, Parliament also passed an act of resumption, so that by the end of the 1480s, the amount of crown land had increased very considerably indeed. The evidence is that this made a substantial difference to the level of ordinary revenue. I should explain that phrase, since I'm not sure I've done so before. Ordinary revenue is what the monarch would expect to come in every year. Revenue from land, from feudal dues such as wardship, from justice, from customs. The stuff essentially he's supposed to live on. The other type of revenue, extraordinary revenue, was essentially taxation, for which he'd need to call Parliament or the convocation of the church. So, in his reign, revenue from land rose considerably, especially towards the end of it. At the start of the reign, from 1487 to 89, the revenue from land amounted to £3,000 a year, from a total of £17,000 of revenue reaching the chamber from all its various sources. Now, I want you to hold on to those figures. £3,000 from land out of total chamber revenue of 17000 for a moment because they fall into the two-bit, no-good cotton-picking category. To get the total revenue of the crown, you needed to add customs revenue to this all this chamber revenue. And in the first years of the round, these are about 32000 quid on average. So that means a total revenue for the crown in the first years of around 50000 quid without any taxation. By later in his reign... 1502 to 1505 trade had recovered a bit and so customs were yielding a bit more about 40,000 rather than 33 but land now land was now pretty much the same as that 40,000 pounds up from the 3,000 pounds we heard about earlier so that's a massive increase one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on Some of this was just the natural growth of working through of his policy to hold on to the lands of the defeated Yorkists in 1485. But Henry continued to gather land to himself as hard as he possibly could with every opportunity and he used the power of attainder frequently to do this. Acts of attainder, as I think you all know by now, are acts which take away both the land of an individual and of all their family and indeed their descendants. It's the death of a family. The land and their revenue revert to the crown. To get people attainted, Henry needed parliaments, since acts of attainder needed to go through parliament. Henry was not keen on parliaments like customers. They get in the way of a good day's work. The average number of days spent in parliament each year in the 15th century was 24 days. In Henry's reign, it was 18. But having said that, he recognised the importance of parliaments in presenting the appearance of consultation, and on occasion, to resort to taxation and while he was about it he used them to grab more land where possible so in fact there was only one parliament in the entire reign where an act of attainder was not passed in total over henry's reign 138 people were attainted now often attainder was a way of slapping your nobles over the wrist and getting a firm hold of them rather than actually ruining them and taking their money away so the process went a bit like this you're a tainted dude. Hand it all over. Please, please forgive me. <laughs> OK, give me a thousand quid, give me three manners, and I'll let you off. Thank you, my Lord. You've saved my life. I'm eternally grateful. It was, in fact, relatively rare for attainders to stick, is my point, before the reign of Henry VII. But not so with Henry VII. With Henry, only 46 of those 138 were subsequently reversed which meant essentially that 86 families were ruined. And of those 46, none of the nobles affected would have got all their land back. Henry was pretty cynical about the process, and the deals he struck were pretty harsh. So this was good, obviously, from the point of view of crown lands and revenues. And like Richard III, Henry worked hard at maximising the revenue from his estates so that he could indeed live of his own and yet maintain his security but the £80,000 we talked about as his revenue from land and customs was still not enough to do this. After 1492 and his invasion of France, he was able to add to this the pension he'd won from the King of France, and that certainly helped. But in the early years, Henry used the expedient of forced loans. Well, maybe forced is too strong a word. Strongly suggested loans. You would like to give me a 100 quid, wouldn't you? That sort of thing it was pretty difficult for a noble to refuse, and this again caused upset unsurprisingly. Later in the reign, as we'll hear, what really kicks off the fury of the nobles is the use of bonds, i.e. a suspended fine, if you like, for good behaviour. But we'll talk about them later. Very often they do get talked about in the same breath as Henry's income, but i have never quite understood the logic. With bonds, you either collected the money, and the noble was then either toast or no longer under your control, or you held the bond over his head and had the control but you couldn't collect the money. You can't have it both ways. Bonds are better considered really in the context of Henry's attitude to his barons and his nobility and the way that he managed them. Henry did what many kings before him had done and after him will do. Tried to make the most of feudal Jews owed to them. The trouble with this was that there were a lot of individual rights and the pain of collecting them was often out of all proportion to the amount of revenue to be gained. The kind of views we're talking about are payments for giving rights of wardship, payments for permission to marry, payments for inheriting land, a whole raft of stuff. Often the rights had fallen out of use and therefore caused objection and outrage. It's in this area in particular, in his pursuit of legal rights, that Henry could be called rapacious. His lawyers pored over the descriptions of the king's rights to find more ways of extracting money. They went sometimes into philosophical concepts. It was tenants-in-chief, for example, who owed feudal dues to the king. But the law could interpret tenants-in-chief as people who held other benefits from the king, not just land. A job or an office, for example. In this way, a whole bunch of people who'd never paid dues before could be brought into the frame and they'd become liable to all kinds of payments. It was all very technical and very devious. All that can be said of Henry is that this was not a naked tyranny in the sense that he did always act within the law, although straining the law as far as it could go, and certainly flouting custom. Henry also gave himself some new instruments of law, partly, at least, to help enforce these legal rights, That partly is important. Henry took his oath to preserve the king's peace very seriously, Many of the changes he made in the legal structure were made to improve the delivery of justice, but they weren't the only reason. There are two main developments to talk about, the Court of Star Chamber and the Council Learned in Law. Both of these will become notorious at some point. Honestly, both did not start off notorious, though. Anyway, these two courts were called Prerogative Courts or Courts of Equity You're probably aware that in England the legal system was by now mainly governed by what's called common law. Common law was based on precedence. The law wasn't written down, it was arrived at through the judgments of the court. Common law demanded the process of trial by jury. Courts of equity, on the other hand, were based on the requirement to do the right thing rather than follow the law, which is quite a radical difference. They're also called prerogative courts because they're based solely on the rights and will of the king not on custom and practice. In this, they follow the principles of Roman law rather than Germanic. As such, they need not mess about with the likes of juries either. Generally, these cases were started by a petition rather than by the king. So courts like this were not new. Two already existed, the Exchequer Court and the Chancery Court. But now Henry added three more. The Court of Requests had been commissioned in principle by Richard III, and now it became a reality. And the idea of this was to give access to justice to the very poorest, who could not afford justice under normal circumstances. So that's good, isn't it? Lovely Henry. Nice Henry. Just to make sure I'm not taken to the cleaners by one of you lot, the actual name, Court of Requests, doesn't get used until the 1530s. The second one, the Court of Star Chamber, would acquire a worse reputation in time, but initially... It just dealt with civil disputes that were brought to it, usually to do with things like riot or damage. It was presided over by John Morton, and under John Morton its procedures were faster than common law and they were fairly applied. It does not seem to have been used as a way of extorting money from subjects, so it's a tick, as long as you don't object too much to the principle of courts of law based purely on the king's prerogative and open then to tyranny at some future time. The reputation of the court was to head towards the sewers when it acquired the responsibilities of another body set up by Act of Parliament to deal with cases of livery and maintenance. But this wouldn't happen until 1529. Its reputation would get even worse when Charles I decided to use it to raise money. But we have a century or more to go before we get to the Civil War. The situation was not quite so happy when it comes to the third of this group, the Council Learned-in-Law, which becomes shortened to the Council learned now this is an obscure and dark body, the brainchild of Reginald Bray. Just like the Court of Star Chamber, this is not actually a specific body, it's just a group of the king's councillors exercising the king's authority. The title of the Court of Star Chamber, incidentally, acquired its name because Morton took his folks to sit in a particular room and where they sat had a star device on the ceiling. The council learned was set up because the exchequer was figured to be utterly hopeless at collecting the king's debts. It was fine at monitoring the sheriffs and their returns, as it had always done, but that was it. Similarly, the king's chamber, which had taken over the work of the exchequer, as it had done under the Yorkists, of actually collecting and counting the money, was good at counting and hoarding, but a bit shoddy when it came to holding noble feet to the noble fires and pulling in the money. So the council learned was in a way the legal arm of Henry's rapacity and of his desire to screw money out of the nobility. There were two particular names that became associated with the Council Learned in addition to Reginald Bray and these are Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. We'll come back to these two guys in the future. They will be Henry's enforcers. Unlike the other courts of equity the bulk of cases heard by the Council Learned were initiated by the government. Ah! Now there you go, that's something of a giveaway. So here is Henry's conduit to keep things nice and legal, above board, ship shape, Bristol fashion and so on, while also allowing him to nail poor losers that didn't want to cough up for some royal exaction, reasonable or unreasonable. Let me make another point about all of this actually, it's incredibly confusing is it not? I mean all of these courts have overlapping jurisdictions, some of them aren't courts at all, just a bunch of blokes the king's told to get on with it. One of the reasons you'd pay a bunch of money at the time to a lawyer was for him to pick the right court to go through. And the right course in any given situation might have more to do with knowing who might accept a bribe rather than getting the right jurisdiction necessarily. The other point to make is that all of these equity courts really put the wind up the lawyers because they inevitably took business away from the common law courts, the Court of Common Pleas, the King's Bench and all that. Since these people made money from the fees paid by the litigants, this was really unpopular. Lawyers like getting paid. Now it appears that we're on law and therefore it'd be good to touch on the application of justice. After all, it's no use chucking laws through parliaments or having all these courts if you can't implement everything. I also suspect that you've been sitting around for some time scratching your heads and wondering why don't we hear about sheriffs anymore? We always used to be talking about those guys, now they never even get a mensch. What's going on with those guys? Am I right? I bet I'm right. Well, sheriffs are still out there collecting the Jews from justice and taking them to the Exchequer. But their role is becoming more and more redundant and delegated to another group of folks, Justices of the Peace. I am sure all of you will remember that we mentioned back in the days of Richard the Lionheart in 1195 an act setting up local folks called keepers of the peace. And now, by the time of Henry Seventh, justices of the peace became the main instrument for the maintenance of the king's peace. The principle was to accept that whatever laws medieval kings made, the main problem was not in principle, it was in implementation. It's partly for this reason that you get such utterly absurd penalties for crimes, hanging for stealing a sheep, for example, Because implementation and catching criminals were utterly hopeless and rubbish. The thing that had the best chance of working, actually, were local power structures and deterrence. So you get these utterly absurd sentences just to try and scare people from doing the crime in the first place. But the other approach, as I say, were using local power structures. So, for example, a magnate had a much better chance of catching criminals because he had a local network of contacts who relied on him for a living and therefore had a strong incentive to help him find the miscreant. But kings didn't like all this relying on uh, their magnates to implement justice, certainly not Henry, because basically it meant handing over the king's government to a bunch of very powerful people. Justices of the peace, let us call them JPs from now on, were figured to be the answer to this problem. They were generally drawn from the gentry, Directly commissioned by the king to be his eyes and ears in the counters, to report back all goings on and keep the peace. They ran regular courts, they could call out the hue and cry, they could regulate bread prices if that was needed to keep the peace locally, because they were local, they again had the contacts and influence to make things happen. This all sounds fine, doesn't it? Equally, it sounds dandy. So why then did one of Henry's Acts of Parliament whine piteously? Quote, the negligence, misdemeaning and favour shown by the justices whereby the laws and ordinances made for the peace of the Commonwealth and good rule and benefit, security and restful living of his subjects are not duly executed. Well, gentle listeners, the problem is that JPs were not paid. Now, there were incentives. To become a JP and do a good job, there's a deal of status in being a JP, and indeed power. And where there's muck, there's brass, as they say in God's country, and in this case the muck being power. But equally, if the JP is being asked to do something not in their interests, or in the interests of their country, their region, there's a pretty good chance that they won't bother to do it. The takeaway from this is that Henry emphasised and encouraged an institution that would become the backbone of the English justice system for the next 300 years or more. But he appears to have had no success whatsoever at solving the intractable problem of the Middle Ages, how to enforce the laws of the realm. In fact, there is some argument that maybe he actually damaged England's ability to deliver justice. So Henry started the reign determined not to end up like Richard III, or Henry VI, bound and trussed by dissenting barons, unattracted by the cut of his jib, which you have to say is not unreasonable of him. So to prevent that, he didn't want to devolve power to his magnates, and since he sought to reduce the power of his magnates and nobility, presumably that affected their ability to implement and deliver the king's justice. Or that's the thesis anyway. So some of this we've already got into, and I'm loath to repeat myself for fear of having things thrown at me, But so to summarise briefly, Henry sought to reduce the power of his nobility by holding on to lands from defeated Yorkists rather than redistributing them, as we've heard. He used acts of attainder for lords accused of treason much more mercilessly than previous kings, as we've heard. He cultivated a direct relationship with the gentry as JPs to bypass the magnate's control of local justice, as we've heard. He established prerogative courts that at least in part he was able to use to enforce debts held over the lord and he used the bond to control them, like, it has to be said, many kings before him. Now there's one more to add to that list, actually, the attempt to control livery and maintenance. Livery and maintenance. I remember learning about Henry and his livery and maintenance stuff at the age of 11. Happy days. Once again, you're old hands at this now. You know what this is. Medieval lords created their affinities Networks of clients who looked out for their lord's interest came to his call if an army or riot were needed and in return they received his protection. These clients would wear the lord's badge, his livery, a practice called retaining. The lord in question would maintain his clients' rights and lands and very often pay a stipend for their support. So, livery, maintenance. More directly, of course, a lord would employ household men, knights, lawyers, estate managers who would wear his robes and colours and badges. Now, kings didn't like this. Private armies and networks all over the country. And so they tried to ban the practice. Richard II in particular had tried, and look where that got him. Edward IV had tried the same in between sessions with his pies. Henry had a go at cracking the problem in the same way. He passed four laws, with the last being in 1504. And in this has been read a strong king, crushing the evil barons and bringing peace and control. Well, that claim can still be made about Henry, but not really in this area, I'm afraid. The first three laws did little more than the last Act by Edward IV in 1468. The fourth in 1504 extended definitions and penalties, but there's very little evidence of active prosecution of the Act. True enough, a court was set up by Act of Parliament to prosecute illegal retaining and corruption. We know of only 10 cases this court dealt with under Henry's reign, none of which are particularly outstanding. So sadly, the conclusion here is that if we're looking to support the story of Henry's tyranny, it's not to be found in the prosecution of delivery and maintenance. Equally, if we're looking for the delivery of England from the hands of overmighty barons, it's not here either. But in other respects, bonds, holding on to lands and so on, well, there's certainly evidence of Henry's paranoia. Paranoia that it could be argued will turn into downright tyranny after 1503. Because next time, Henry will be hit by a series of body blows. It will be a most unhappy week for Henry. I hope it will not be too unhappy for you with all the downloads. Don't forget all those Anglo-Saxon episodes we'll come across. Again, sorry for the pain. But meanwhile, good luck everyone and have a great fortnight.